We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Fellowship Bible Church, uh, and welcome to those online as well. Um, this morning, we have the honor of having Dr. Mark Snowberger uh, with us. Um, Pastor Postiff is on vacation this week. Dr. Snowberger is a professor at the Detroit Baptist Seminary, and his, but his greatest accomplishment in life is his eldest son. <laughs> so after the service today, we do have a potluck. Um, everyone is invited to come to that. Um, even, as Pastor always says, if he did not bring anything, there is always more than enough food, and you are welcome to come. Um, we do have our service tonight at 6 p.m. with... Uh, Dr. Snowberger again, as well as our normal Wednesday and Saturday uh, prayer meetings. Um, The other thing on here, we do have a youth activity August 13th, so that's a Saturday. Um, So Pastor and Naomi are um, organizing that, so uh, reach out to them if you have any questions, but probably not in the next few days unless it's urgent for some reason. Um, other than that, we do have a memorial service for Nancy Miller on August 21st here at the church. Visitation will be at 2, and the service will follow at 3 p.m. Good morning. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to Ezekiel 46. Ezekiel 46 will continue on in our uh, reading of God's Word from Ezekiel, as we've been doing for the past a few months now. Ezekiel 46. I'll remind you that where the context of this is related to the temple, Ezekiel's temple that is, uh, that we'll be, we'll see in the future. In verse, or chapter 46, beginning in verse 1, it is written, Thus says the Lord God, the gateway of the inner court that that faces toward the east shall be, shut, shall be shut the six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be opened, and on the, new, and on the day of the new moon it shall be opened. The prince shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway from the outside and stand by the gatepost. The priest shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings. He shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go out, but the gate shall not be shut until evening. Likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the entrance to this gateway before the Lord on the Sabbaths and the new moons. The burnt offering that the prince offers to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. And the grain offering shall be one ephah for a ram and the grain offering for the lambs as much as he wants to give as well as a hin of oil with every ephah. On the day of the new moon, it shall be a young bull without blemish. Six six lambs, a ram, they shall be without blemish. 
He shall prepare a grain offering of an ephah for a bull, then an ephah for a ram, as much as he wants to give for the lambs, and a hin of oil with every ephah. When the prince enters, he shall go in by way of the vestibule of the gateway, and then go out the same way. You'll notice that uh, this is prescribing two different offerings, one for the Sabbaths and one for the new moons. And then it's going to go on and describe what the people should do as they come and worship as well in verse 9 and continuing. Verse 9 says, But when the people of the land come before the Lord on the appointed feast days, whoever enters by way of the north gate to worship shall go out by the way of the south gate. And whoever enters by way of the south gate shall go out by way of the north gate. He shall, go, he shall not return by the way of the gate through which he came, but shall go out through the opposite gate. The prince shall then be in their midst. When they go in, he shall go in, and when they go out, he shall go out. At the festivals and the appointed feast days, the grain offering shall be an ephah for a bull, an ephah for a ram, as much as he wants to give for the lambs, and a hint of oil with every ephah. Now, when the prince makes a voluntary burnt offering or voluntary peace offering to the Lord, the gate that faces toward the east shall then be open for him, and he shall prepare his burnt offerings and his peace offerings as he did on the Sabbath day. Now, if you remember back to chapter 44, verse 2, you may find it somewhat curious that uh, the prince is allowed to go through this east gate because in chapter 44, verse, uh, verse 1 and 2, it says, Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter by it, because the Lord... God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. However, we see here in chapter 46, verse 12, there is one exception to this, and this is when voluntary burnt offerings or a voluntary peace offering is made to the Lord. In that case, the prince is allowed to make his way through the open gate, and it shall be open for him. Uh, end of verse 12 says, Then he shall go out, and after he goes out, the gate shall be shut, as it was and should be for the Lord only. Verse 13, You shall daily make a burnt offering to the Lord to the Lord of a lamb of the first year without blemish, and you shall prepare it every morning, and you shall prepare a grain offering with it every morning, a sixth of an ephah and a third of a hin of oil to moisten the fine flour. This grain offering is a perpetual ordinance to be made regularly to the Lord. Thus they shall prepare the lamb, the grain offering, and the oil as a regular burnt offering every morning. Now, the, the rest of the chapter, or part of it, is going to go on to speak about inheritance and how the land is divided amongst uh, uh, the tribes and the peoples and how it should stay that way as God has provided it for him. Then, beginning in verse 16, it says, Thus says the Lord God, If the prince gives a gift of some of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons. It, shall, it is their possession by inheritance. But if he gives a gift of some of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his until the year of liberty, or we may know it as the year of jubilee, after which it shall return to the prince. But his inheritance shall belong to his sons. It shall be, become theirs. Moreover, the prince shall not take any of the people's inheritance by evicting them from their property. He shall provide an inheritance for his sons from his own property, 
so that none of my people may be scattered from his property. Now he brought me through the entrance, that is Ezekiel, which was at the side of the gate into the holy chambers of the priests which faced toward the north. And there a place was situated at their, at their extreme western end. And he said to me, This is the place where the priests shall boil the trespass offering and the sin offering, and where they shall bake the grain offering, so that they do not bring them out into the outer court to sanctify the people. Then he brought me out into the outer court and caused me to pass by the four corners of the court. And in fact, in every corner of the court there was another court. In the four corners of the court were enclosed courts, 40 cubits long and 30 wide. All four corners were the same size. There was a row of building stones all around in them, all around the four of them, and cooking hearths were made under the rows of stones all around. And he said to me, There are the kitchens where the ministers of the temple shall boil the sacrifices of the people. It may be difficult in our minds to conceptualize all of this and how it exactly looks, but I can assure you this, that uh, one day when we behold it, uh, we will be in awe, not just at the building structure, but at the worship that is taking place in this temple. And, And we look forward to that day. Good morning. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, this morning to the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk. We'll be looking this morning at the second chapter. I do uh, thank you for the opportunity to, to preach here. I've got a, I feel like I have an expanding number of friends here, and I uh, enjoy uh, coming here. I've got a long friendship with uh, your pastor. Um, of course, always relish the opportunity to spend a little extra time with my grandkids and even my firstborn son. (laughs) This morning in Sunday school, uh, we began a three-part series through the book of Habakkuk. I'm sorry if you were not in Sunday school this morning. I recognize a lot of you have responsibilities outside the service here. Uh, But don't worry, Uh, we'll bring you up to speed as to where we are in the book. And if you're able to make it out tonight, uh, we will finish up this book, uh, Lord willing, and uh, look at the third chapter. In the first chapter of this book, we, uh, even though this is a rather obscure book, we find that it has a lot of relevance for today. And we see Habakkuk in a nation in a state of moral deterioration, standing at the cusp of the exile. Uh, Judah's last good king, Uzziah, has died. Uh, Puppet kings will be in place until the nation ultimately falls. Uh, Good was failing in the land. Wickedness was prevailing for God's chosen nation. The law was not being observed. It was not being enforced. The numbers of the righteous were declining. And the few that remained were left with the troubling question, why isn't God doing anything? Why isn't God doing anything about this? If God is truly righteous and good, why isn't he enforcing holiness? And this morning in Sunday school, we looked at chapter 1 and and saw in Habakkuk a very good response to this problem. We find that he had been patiently and humbly asking this question of God for a long time. Finally, God, through a vision, starting in verse 5, answers Habakkuk's question. He says that the 
Chaldeans, they're called here, sometimes we call them the Babylonians. The Chaldeans would be God's rod of discipline leveled against these rebellious Israelites. But this was not the answer that Habakkuk was expecting or wanting. Why would God use this idolatrous, bloodthirsty, wicked group of people to, 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 to punish the relatively good or a people of Israel. Now, I recognize all sin is sin. I mentioned this earlier in, in, in Sunday school today. At the same time, we recognize that there are, in this world, degrees of sin. Some sins are worse than others. And the Babylonians were very wicked people. They did not seem to be the appropriate uh, agents of God's justice. And so Habakkuk is confused, even scandalized by this thought, and he begins again in earnest to ask God for clarification. And we spent some time looking at the person Habakkuk this morning and the way he prayed, how he was humble, how he was reverent, how he was patient uh, and persistent in his prayer, always had in, in the forefront of his thoughts God's first interest, his reputation. But he anticipates here the people would be to of the people would be to question where is God and what kind of God is this? They would ask perhaps a question that we asked about twenty years ago. Where was God when Jerusalem fell? Like we asked, where was God when the Twin Towers fell? In chapter two of this book is the extended answer, if I may, that God gives in answer to this battery of additional questions and requests that Habakkuk makes at the end of chapter 1. And so if you're not already there, please turn there and we will read the second chapter together. And as, I, as we read, I want you to see a single message unfold. You can trust God to set things straight. You can trust God to set things straight. So starting in verse 2, verse 1, we actually said should probably be with uh, chapter uh, chapter 1, but uh, it's the last words of Habakkuk's prayer. Verse 2 begins the Lord's answer. The Lord answered me, Habakkuk, and said, write this vision, make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the end it will speak, it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright within him. But the just shall live by his faith. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he's a proud man, and he does not stay at home because he enlarges his desire as hell. He is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Will not all these take up a taunt against him, a taunting riddle against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges, will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you, and you will become their booty because you have plundered plundered many nations? And all the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and of the violence of the land and of the city and of all who dwell in it. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house. 
that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. For stone will cry out against the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Woe to him who builds a town bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire, and nations weary themselves in vain? But the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that he may look upon his, you may look upon his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory, and also drink, and be exposed and as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you as the plunder of beasts, which made them afraid because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. What profit is an image that its maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. Woe to him who takes wood and says, Awake to silent stone. Arise, it will teach us. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it. But the Lord, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So we find that God is pleased with Habakkuk's sincere request for an answer to his troubling series of questions and graciously gives him an answer not only for him, but also for the people that Habakkuk represents as a prophet. He starts out in verse 2 by telling Habakkuk to write down the answer on a tablet and circulate it widely. It says there will be runners. These are not people who are running because of what they hear, but rather because they are running to the four corners of the country with this message of hope for the people of Israel. And what is this message? Well, God summarizes his message in his introduction, telling Habakkuk this, My holiness and my sovereignty are not in jeopardy. But my timetable is different than yours. The vindication of God's nation, the vindication of God himself, may not come immediately, but it surely will come. In one respect, we see God vindicated when Babylon falls to the Medes and the Persians several years later. But in many respects, the final vindication of God is still far ahead of us. We could turn to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, and we find these verses cited in that chapter. He's going to quote to Habakkuk 2, 3, and 4, but as you're going to see, there are a few changes, subtle changes, in the wording. He says here in chapter 10, verse 37, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just will live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. Two important details I think you can notice here about how the author of Hebrews uses this verse uh, in, a, in, in ours. 
First, you'll notice that the words are still set in the future tense. Yes, God has vindicated uh, himself when Babylon fell, but Babylon was conquered by another wicked group of people, the Persians. The Persians were conquered by another wicked and idolatrous people, the Greeks. The Greeks were conquered by another wicked and idolatrous people, the Romans. And it's not as though the uh, the many uh, the, the 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 many nations and and uh, uh, tribes that came and ultimately affected Rome's fall were any better. And so we. We expect then that we should see these words still set in the future tense because we do not we do not see God yet fully vindicated. Perhaps one group or another has not sunk quite as low as the other in its depravity, but they are all nonetheless wicked. And so when the author of Hebrews writes seven hundred years later, it's still in the future tense. We're still awaiting that great day of the Lord, the day in which God flexes the muscles of his almighty arm and sets things straight, and you can trust him to do so. But a second difference here uh, in uh, Hebrews 10, as compared to Hebrews, uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, is a switch from the impersonal to the personal. In Habakkuk, we're looking for God's answer in impersonal terms. Wait for it. Look for it. Though it tarries, it surely will come. But in Hebrews, we find that it transferred to a he. He will come. He will not tarry. This is not a mistake. This is not a reinterpretation of the words. Instead, it tells us what form God's justice will finally take when it ultimately comes. It will be the person of the Almighty Son of God who comes at the close of this age and sets things straight in the great, terrible day of the Lord. So we can trust God to set things straight. There's a lot said in this chapter. There's a lot of good theology in this chapter. There are a lot of rather intricate woes that we are just not going to have time to unpack like like I'd like to if we're going to get through the whole book in three sessions here. So rather than go through all of those details, I've selected three major theological statements that the author, Habakkuk, makes in chapter 2 that I, bring, that I believe bring home the central thrust of God's reply to Habakkuk. Three statements that give the rationale for trusting God to set things straight when we are in the midst of trial and trouble, tribulation, persecution. Statement one, God will someday justify the righteous. We find that here in Habakkuk 2 verse 4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Habakkuk 2 4 here, God begins the heart of his response to Habakkuk's questions. And I think really the heart of the theodicy that marks this whole book. God is speaking for himself and explaining why things are happening the way they are and how it's going to end. Okay, and so this is the heart of the book. And we find his first response to Habakkuk's question, these very rather famous words here, the just shall live by faith, made famous because of its citation 
in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 verse 17, read by Martin Luther and becomes one of the major launch points for the Protestant Reformation. But what exactly does this line mean? This passage is quoted several times in the New Testament, three to be exact. And every time it's it's interpreted with a little bit of a shade of difference. And I'd like to look at each one and see if we can't figure out uh, the mystery here and un- unpack it a bit. Galatians chapter 3 then. Galatians chapter 3 verses 11 and 12. Book of Galatians here, of course, contrasts the life under the law with the life of faith. We find that this is the theme of the book and right in the heart of it, right in the center of it. We find this statement here in verse 11 that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. This is evident. For the law, for the just shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, but the man who does them will live by them. Let's go to Romans 1, too, since we mentioned it as well. Romans 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 17. In the righteousness here of God, is reve- there, there is a, in, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by his faith. And both of these passages use Habakkuk 2 pretty much the same way. Although the law is perfect and good and true, both uh, Paul in both contexts would admit, uh, no one's ever kept it. No one can keep it. No natural-born son of Israel even could have kept it. Any prospect of salvation by works stands occluded by the crippling force of depravity. There's a hypothetical hope of uh, of salvation by works, but it's overwhelmed by this glaring reality that the law has become a star witness for the prosecution rather than for the defense. It declares us all to be guilty. Despite the promise of hope and salvation that we find throughout the Old Testament, there is this guilty verdict. It's inevitable. Announced. All that's left now is the sentencing. There are no 11th hour theatrics that come to mind that might change this grim reality. And yet both Romans and later Hebrews tells us that there there is hope that remains. That God's promise could yet be fulfilled. And it's faith in these promises, both letters tells us, that function as the instrument of God's justification. We can hope to live because of faith, a faith that finds its object in the one who in our place fulfills the law and does what we could not do. So Romans 1 identifies the object of faith, the revelation of a righteousness so infinite and overwhelming that it satisfies all of God's expectations, the righteousness of God himself in Christ Jesus. All who exercise faith in Jesus Christ may live, and only those. And like I said, it, 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 this verse more than any other became the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. It cracked the dreadful curse 
that Romanism held over the whole Western world uh, during that period of time. Uh, uh, Martin Luther, we, we read in his, from his own accounts, uh, as a, he was a monk and one who uh, flagellated himself, whipped himself continuously <clears throat> in order that he might take away some of the scourge of sin that was in him. And as he read Romans chapter 1, there's a righteousness of God coming. He was, he was terrified because he thought in terms of the righteousness of God as something that would take the form of judgment. And so he beat himself all the more until he realized after further study that the righteousness coming from God was actually in the form of a gift. Not in the form of judgment, but in the form of a gift. And simply received by faith could be something that could solve his problems. And so both of these passages here in Galatians and Romans indicate that justification is by faith alone, and we find that the just the, the, uh, uh, shall live because of their faith. So if I could keep, that, keep those words in mind. The righteous will live because of his faith. But as we noted earlier, this passage is also uh, cited in Hebrews chapter 10. Remember, we already looked at that, verses 37 and 38, yet a little while. The coming one will come, he will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And in this verse, the context is different. It's seated among the many warning passages of the book of Hebrews and tells uh, the readers that they need to persist in their faith and in the expression of their faith if they are going to meet with the pleasure from God. And so the original readers were being tempted to turn away from the gospel, return to the law, and the writer responds with these verses from Habakkuk with the following intent. The person who is truly justified by God, will survive God's judgment because he is living a life of faithfulness. So not he will live because of his faith, but he will live in accordance with his faith. He will live faithfully. He will persevere in the faith. And if a person does not remain faithful to his profession of faith in the gospel, but turns his back upon it, he, he, he reveals that he was never justified in the first place, and if he shrinks back, so too will God. So the passage does not say that so much that we are justified by faith and not by works, but rather that we demonstrate that we have been justified by faith by pers persevering in faithful works. I think it's an important thing for us to, to remember in a day where sometimes it's very easy, sometimes we even call it an easy believist approach, where all you simply have to do is say your prayer, say your sorry to God, ask him to forgive you, and that's it. And yet the author of Hebrews reminds us that it's not simply a, an, an initial expression of faith, but it's a perseverance in the faith, a living by faith in such a way uh, that that faith is divulged to be true and real. Yes, James 1, actually James 2, I was thinking. Uh, but it, it, and I think we, we have, it's, it's helpful that we have a similar tension in Romans 1 and, and, excuse me, Romans 4 and James 2. 
In Romans 4, we find Paul saying that Abraham is described as having been justified by faith alone. But in James 2, Abraham is justified not by faith alone, but by works. And we say, well, what gives? These, these, these two verses seem to be at odds with one another, but it's not a contradiction. Rather, Paul is speaking to the instrument of justification. Justification is by faith alone, but James speaks to the nature of faith. It is a faith that is never alone. Faith is always attended by works. And so backing up here then to Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, what does it mean that the just shall live by faith? Well, I think both really come to bear. Simply because both ideas are wrapped up in one sentence. A true believer lives in this life consonant with his faith with his trust in God, and on the great day he will live because he has trusted in God. And as Habakkuk looks at the world crumbling around him, his mind is fixed on this thought. That if he persists in faithfulness and faith in God, there will be deliverance. This is Habakkuk's message to all of us who see the world crumbling around us. When we despair of any solution in this life, what do we do? Well, we have faith in God. And we live out that faith with a consistency that only God can produce in us. And know that whether or not you triumph in this life, it certainly you certainly will triumph in the next. The just will live by faith. We mentioned in Sunday school this morning, as we mentioned in Sunday school this morning, that we all actually labor under a death sentence. We might not have received it yet from our doctor. But we're under a death sentence. It is appointed unto all men, once to die, and after this the judgment. So the fact of the matter is, in all of the prayers for deliverance and for recovery and, 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 and healing, eventually there's going to be a prayer that's answered no, right? That's the way it's always going to be. Now, in God's providence, the the prayer may change to, God, take me home. But the fact is, that prayer that we make for relief and for recovery and for, uh, for, uh, for a restoration of what once was, one day that, that, that request is going to be answered with a resounding no. And what do we do then? What do we do then? What we do is say that we shall live by faith alone. And it's a resolve of how we are to live our lives and a confidence in the life that is to come. I I periodically return now and again to read portions of Fox's Book of Martyrs, most well-known of several Puritan collections of stories of believers that were tortured and murdered for their faith. I remember when I was a a youngster, my pastor said that it couldn't be read in one sitting. And I tried to prove him wrong, but because uh, <laughs> I wanted just to see if I could do it, because he said it couldn't be done. Uh, but the fact is, it, 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 is a, it, is a, it is a difficult book to get through. It's not pleasant to read. But I dare say that it's a work that every believer probably should read at some point in his Christian life. The atrocities that some of our forebears endured for their faith were of a stupendous nature. The stories make you shudder at times. But they'll do something else. 
They'll show you how a Christian ought to think and act in the most bitter of circumstances. In account after account, you, you hear, you read how parents remained faithful while their children were sliced up in front of them, tortured for days before them. How men remained faithful while watching their wives ravaged and murdered. How whole church buildings were burned down with, while full of believers. How Christians were burned, drowned, hanged, disemboweled sawn in two and accepted their fate gladly because they knew that God would someday set things straight. Justice would prevail. Right would prevail. And wickedness will be punished. And they were bound and determined that they would sacrifice everything to please God and live by faith. I pray that these things do not happen to me, to my wife, to my family. But if I do, I trust I'll be able to sing with conviction those words from Faith of Our Fathers, right? Our fathers chained in prison darks were still in heart and conscience free. How sweet would be their children's fate if they, like them, could die for thee? Now, I don't believe that songwriter was eager for his family to be tortured. I do want to see my family exercise faith in God and see that faith so tried and proven so that I won't have doubt that they will be among those who have been justified by faith because then I can know that they'll live. How do I know that they've been justified by faith? Well, because they persevere in that faith and the just shall live by faith. That's the promise. But regrettably, because God in his loving kindness has tarried for so long, I think sometimes we forget to, we start to doubt that God will set things straight. Because for so long we've not really seen evil avenged by God. We see instead a God who tarries long in love and pity. He delays his judgment. We read these five woes that mark this chapter here and we scratch our heads and say when's he going to do these things when are these woes going to actually fall and so we read that God will crush the wicked the wicked will be impoverished they will be killed the stones and rocks will bear witness against them they'll be exposed they'll be devastated but we don't see this happening at least not right now certainly not on a global scale. And so right in the middle of the woes, God interrupts the delivery of a woe to the wicked with another great theological statement in verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters fill the sea. And so it gives something of a time element here. This promise that we find in this verse has never been fulfilled, but it's a promise that repeats itself over and again throughout, especially the Old Testament. God himself will someday rule this world in perfect justice in a period commonly known as the millennium, the kingdom. It first appears in Numbers chapter 14, verse 21, As sure as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Perhaps one of the more well-known ones, 
Isaiah chapter 11, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will be able to lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze together, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like an ox, the nursing child will play by the hole of a cobra. The weaned child will put his hand in a viper's den, but they won't hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters fill the sea. So that's where the fulfillment takes place. Jeremiah 31, in the, uh, in the outlining of the great new covenant. Behold, days are coming, Jeremiah says, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant with I, which I make with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to drink, bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, although I was a husband to them. But this is a covenant that I will make with the house of, the Lord, of, of Israel after those de- days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. On their hearts I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will not teach again every man his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. There's not going to be any personal evangelism. Why not? For they will all know me, from the greatest of them to the least, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity, their sin I will remember no more, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters fill the sea. This, this, this is the great promise of the glorious kingdom of God. It's a central theme. Many would say the central theme of the scriptures. At every turn, you can see this promise over and again. And it's not some sort of fuzzy dream that's somehow given exaggerated proportions and a few books like Zechariah and Daniel and Revelation. These books are literal glimpses of what the reality will be when that kingdom asserts itself. We're finite creatures. We have trouble imagining a world that is like this. I mean, reading in Isaiah 11, particularly the animals getting along like this, not being worried about snakes biting your children. I mean, we just just can't think of a world like that, right? And because we're exposed to so much fiction and fantasy, perhaps, in our viewing habits and our reading habits, we sometimes have trouble thinking about the millennial kingdom in the way it ought to be thought. This world will someday be restored to pristine conditions. The weather will become temperate. That would be nice. Plants will grow without the inhibition of weeds. Animals will become docile. Physical disease, deformity, problems associated with old age eliminated. Justice will prevail. It will be applied swiftly and perfectly. Wars will cease. Terrorism will become a thing of the past. Christ will reign in person over the whole world. I appreciate the fact that uh, your church uh, reads through long, perhaps sometimes tedious portions of scripture week by week by week, because I, I, I really think that's something that's essential. Uh, to be done, but you're reading a passage here about the millennium. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, give away the punchline at the end here. But the very last words of the book of Ezekiel, as we come to this great description of the millennial kingdom and the temple and the city, is the Lord is there. The Lord is there, and 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 that's and that's the promise here. 
The kingdom is coming. It's real. It's not some Peter Pan, never-never world. And I think we all believe this in theory. I hope we do. But it's really hard sometimes to grasp the certainty of this reality, which is why we need to spend some time in our Bibles reading it over and over again. Problem is, we raise up our eyes, read the news, and doubt and despair and even despondency break through. It's why we need to spend time daily, weekly, routinely, regularly in the scripture, because we need to not only counteract the rest of the news, but also to restore our confidence in the fact that the kingdom's coming until it becomes part of the very fabric of our being, until we wake up in the morning thinking about the kingdom, and we walk to work thinking about the kingdom, go to home to our families thinking about the kingdom, come to church each week thinking about it, till we get into our heads that what we see around us is a temporary reality, scarcely more than a dream or a blip in the history of all things, compared to the ultimate reality of the kingdom to come and eternity to follow, a kingdom whose builder and maker is God. God will set things straight. So that's the second promise here. But even here, perhaps we could read this and say, but it hasn't happened yet, and there's not really many signs to say that it's, it's about to happen. Millennium, heaven, eternity are still set in the elusive future, right? And so it tends, because we're concrete people, uh, to make them abstract sometimes. And so God makes a third and final theological observation, this one at the very end of the chapter here in verse 20. And that is that God is in charge now. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Presented this morning, Habakkuk as a model of how a believer should approach God when perplexed by what God is doing. Tonight we'll look at his, God's response and, uh, and, and Habakkuk's response to God and answer in the form of a great psalm, a poem, that magnifies God's greatness, praises him for his attributes, and calls on him again to flex his almighty muscles of his sovereign arm. But perhaps even sovereign, uh, uh, some, someone like uh, Habakkuk, uh, who... By all, by all accounts, was a very faithful prophet, might have wavered, if not for the last statement here in chapter 2. Over and over, we read that God will set things straight someday. That he will someday rule the world, and eventually he will reward the just and punish the wicked. But what about now? What about today? Is God just like the idols of the heathen? Carved rocks just sit there, can't move unless the owner picks them up and carries them about. Dead images that can't live, that cannot wake up, that cannot speak or give good advice. Are we on our own until someday comes? Did God just set the world in motion and send it careening chaotically out of control until God simply says enough. And God climaxes the chapter 
with these words. No. God's in charge now. Nothing is escaping his control. There is not so much as a tiny speck of cosmic dust floating free outside the control of God. Christ may not yet be seated on the throne of David, but rest assured, he is the sovereign of the universe. He's seated on his throne, not standing, wringing his hands, worried about the outcome, but calmly orchestrating every event in this universe with precision and with perfection. He's high, he's lifted up above every threat of danger, unconcerned that he will be thwarted or overthrown. The scriptures are replete with statements like that. That's why it's so important that we just read them. We, we read through them regularly and completely because the, 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 the scriptures are just filled with these promises and, and, and guarantees that this is the way it's going to be. Psalm 2, for instance. Why do the nation, nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Nations are raging right now. They seem always to be, but we read the news and we find that specific nations are raging a little bit more than normal right now, right? The kings of earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath in his dis and distress them in his deep displeasure, because I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the dec decree that the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the end of the earth for your possession. You shall break them in with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with, with, with trembling. Kiss the sun now, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Several other passages we could go to, but I, 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 there's so many that are they're just they're so choice. I just I just love reading these things. But let's let's go to one more. Uh, Isaiah Isaiah 46. Bell bells bows down. Nebo stoops. These are the gods of the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. So here, 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 are the, here are the conquerors of Israel carrying about these idols. They stoop, they bow down together, but they could not deliver the burden. They have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have, have been upheld by me from earth, who have been carried from the wound, even to your old age, I am he, and even to gray years I will gray hairs I will carry you I have made you I will bear you even I will carry you I will deliver you this is the present to whom will you liken me and make me your equal and compare me that we should be alike they lavish gold out of a bag and weigh silver on scales they hire a goldsmith and he makes a god out of it they prostrate themselves they even worship they bear it on their shoulders and carry it about setting it in place and it stands and it doesn't move 
But one cries out to it, but it doesn't move. Can't answer. Can't save him out of his trouble. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall this to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel will stand, and I will do all my pleasure. I will call a bird of prey from the east, a man who will execute my counsel from a far country. This is a reference here uh, to the Persians, who ultimately bring deliverance to Israel from the Babylonians. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I also will do it. And we find here that God is in complete control even now. How does each passage end? Well, be still, be silent, calm down, hush up. Don't worry. God's in control even now. You can trust God to set things straight. And so we come back to this question. Where was God on 9-11? Where was he when I lost that dear member of my family? Where was he when my family was torn apart? Where was he when I went bankrupt? Where was he? Well, the same place he's always been. Sitting calmly on his throne orchestrating the events of the world and doing all his good pleasure. He was doing his will in heaven and earth, as in Daniel 4.35, and no one is eligible to stay his hand or say, what are you doing? He's acting in perfect justice and true holiness in bringing the greatest possible glory to himself that could possibly be achieved. And though it may seem for a moment that God has lost control, we should do as Isaiah did when the nation of Israel was crumbling about him and see God reclining in his temple, high and lifted up, unmoved, unworried, unhurried, and secure. And what should our response be to the injustice that we endure for the cause of Christ? We should be calmly, silently watching the mighty hand of God in full faith, God will someday set things straight. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful as we read through the scriptures for the sovereignty of God. And though it's a, 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 a unnerving doctrine at times because it makes us all vulnerable, we all also recognize that it's a bracing doctrine because the ones that are most vulnerable are those who are unrighteous. There is a confidence that we have that you will set things straight, that righteous will, righteousness will be rewarded and wicked will be punished. And Lord, we do, as the, uh, as the, the, the last writer of Scripture wrote, we, we pray that that happens quickly. Lord, come quickly. But in, in, in the meantime... Lord, I ask that we would rest confidently and securely in the sovereignty of God, that you will, in fact, one day set things straight. Hasten that day, we pray, and give us confidence, greater confidence each day that it will happen. We pray all this in your name. Amen.